0: Beautiful yet cold and windy day in Perth. I'm really pleased to be here with you, Jimmy Thompson from MJA Studios. Jimmy, welcome to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. And we're sitting in um, a house, your house that you've built and all of this beautiful glazed brick and a little bit of bagged brick. And before we dive into a little bit why you've designed in brick and some of the projects that you've designed, maybe we could just take a step back and you could tell me a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was born in Perth. My family came from all over the world. So total mongrel, essentially, in terms of my lineage, but very passionate about Perth since growing up. And as a kid, you know, we always, or I always, would draw what I wanted the city to be in the future. So it's been really interesting, that kind of life journey or arc, to see that I've actually can now be involved in making Perth a different place. But grew up very much happy in Perth, always Loving the landscape, but always wanting it to be a slightly different city and to evolve.
0: What changes did you want to make when you were drawing the city to be how you envisaged it?
1: perth has got this incredible landscape. As a kid growing up and you're watching movies from all around the world and you're looking at big cities like LA and New York and London and Paris and all that. You know, probably the thing that's glaringly wasn't part of the city, especially back then, was just the vibrancy. And people, I remember coming back from, from India with the family and just driving down Riverside Drive from the airport and it was just crickets, like you can't see anyone. It was beautiful. <laughs> but I remember asking like, and I was like, where is everybody? And it was just like, there's no density, which is for some people that's awesome. But as a kid, I guess I just wanted more. I just Mm. wanted more, more varied kind of demographic. I wanted more difference. I wanted things to be like a proper city.
0: And it's interesting we were talking about that, how I think Perth is such a pretty city and in some ways all the development that has occurred hasn't necessarily taken away from that. But I just don't know whether it's created that density of soul and vibrancy that we were talking about.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I think... There's always probably been a bit of a cultural cringe over here and, and Perth and Western Australia really need to just continue to really look at themselves and embrace our geography. Embrace the fact that we're the only Indian Ocean city in Australia, that we live in the most populous time zone in the world. And the idea that we're the most isolated city in the world, while it might have had its advantages over the last 15 months is isn't something that we need to talk about apart from the fact that what it has done is always separate us and give us breathing room away from the kind of fashion cycles and style cycles that exist on the East Coast. So it's that thing of just being proud about who we are, where we live and understanding our geography, which I think is so important because then that feeds in and creates true soul and difference. Mm. And when I go to a different part of the world or a different part of Australia... I don't want to see what's in my hometown. I want to see something that's unique. And that's the sort of thing that I want to be involved in and what we want to be involved in as a practice is getting people to embrace Perth as it is.
0: Own it. And what it can be. And yeah.
1: And design like you give a damn and, <laughs> and really just make it the city that you want it to be.
0: Design like you give a damn. So, Jimmy, now we're at university, was architecture what you thought it would be?
1: I think a lot of the... The content was. You know, I knew what architecture as a profession, the sort of things that professionals did. I had some understanding of that. I guess what was different was just the characters of the of the teachers themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember rocking up on that first day and we had a guy, Charlie Mann, who looked like Rod Stewart. We had <laughs> Nigel Westbrook who looked like Eric Clapton. You know, and you're just like, wow, what is this place? This is pretty cool. And then I guess just the whole working environment was... Different to anything I'd experienced, you know, so different to high school. Having 24, 24 hour access to studios, working 16 hour days, six days a week, just for the love of it, and the intensity of, you know, working with, in a really collegiate way, with your new friends. So that was different. But the actual material, I think that was what I kind of expected.
0: You talked a little bit about the influences that have obviously informed your design. Did any of those, were they expanded on in, at university or did you already have those yeah. influences?
1: Look, I think the teachers that we had, we had excellent design coordinators. They really encouraged us to understand where we sit in the world in WA and what is our climate, what is our landscape. Our first degree was, is called environmental design for, mm. for good reason. And I think they also really talk to us about, pose the question, what is an appropriate vernacular architecture for Perth and for WA and how do you make buildings res- respond specifically to their location? And so I think all those sort of first principles, lessons of architecture, which they taught us, has really continued on in the work that we've done.
0: Mm. And so you finish uni and then what happens?
1: Yeah, well, I guess that's the, always <laughs> the big question? <laughs> at that time, though, Perth was in a pretty good um, space in terms of the economy. But I guess that was different, you know, from high school to university, there was some understanding. But then what we were kind of taught at uni was almost that the architects, almost like architect's as hero, that, you know, any project that involves an architect was going to be a good outcome. And then you come out of uni and go wow, there's a lot of really average architects around. And that's kind of just happening because, you know, you have this idea that architects are always pursuing good outcomes and then you realise that, you know, such a large percentage of commercial buildings are designed by by architects and a lot of them are, are pretty ordinary outcomes. So for me, that's been an eternal interest to actually challenge what happens in commercial design and make sure that you actually, rather than the idea that, commercial outcomes are mutually exclusive to end-user amenity or the Mm. aspirations of the local community, that with good design that those three elements can be mutually inclusive.
0: Do you think, though, the intent is, and and this is just a perspective, I think that there's what the building was originally designed as and then where it gets to through no fault of its own, you know, sometimes that creativity or that influence is lost. Is that Do you Um, see that or...?
1: Yeah, look, it, it, projects take a long time and, and it is a difficult process and you are constantly challenged. And that may be through public consultation, through councils mm. or eternal sort of value engineering prospects. But I guess one of the values of, of us as a practice is that we design like we give it damn, and we keep going and keep fighting for what makes sense. And you've just got to have that perspective and keep bashing your head against the wall.
0: And so tell me how did MJA come about then?
1: So MJA Studio, as it is now, has been around for 10 years. Uh, And as of last week, we have four new shareholders, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. A lot of of our old friends who have been with us have now bought into the business. But essentially, three of us, uh, myself, Wes Barrett and Mark Sazelski, took over another practice and transformed it. And this gets back to that idea I was talking about before, about one of the good things that the university teacher told me was that If you want to affect change in the built environment, don't go work for a really cool studio. Go work for an average studio and make them really great. Mm. And it's that kind of flip that actually has proved to be the greatest decision I've probably made because we've been able to take a practice which had 12 staff but six directors and a very different design philosophy and transform that into a much different type of design-focused commercial practice. Now with 40 staff who are really engaged and doing really great work, across a much broader uh, variety of typologies. So I guess going back to how we started is that you know, we t- took over a practice, we bought out uh, a series of other owners and we started employing you know guys that I had taught at university or people that we'd studied with, brought back some friends who'd been working in Sydney and Switzerland and other parts of the world uh, and said, hey, look, there's a great opportunity for us to really make and drive meaningful change uh, in commercial architecture in Perth. And that's been really important to us as a purpose, mm. you know, to, to affect positive change in the built environment and to really demonstrate that you can get really great end-user amenity, you can actually deliver on what the community aspires to have. They might not agree with it while you're trying to get it approved, but you know, I always recount this story of a project just up the road where we'll photograph after completion and this old nonna comes up to us and says, what are you boys doing? Oh, we're photographing this building, and she says, You know, we didn't want this building, but we like this building, (laughs) and I thought that was great because, you one, they're not like the building, but two, like that, it's that thing that you know, sometimes change is hard for people, and you've got to be straight with them and say, You might not agree with it now, but you will understand it when it's built, and that really relies on the architect and design team being really responsible in the way that they approach every site's context like make it relevant to its place make it specific to its place and then when it's built more often than not the community will go actually this is this is a really good outcome
0: Mm. and do you see that though as one of the key challenges particularly with your approach
1: I think it's it's crucial like you can't rock up once something's already been designed and said hey (laughs) how good is this you know Like, I don't think you can do that with design advisory committees or local councils or the general public. There's another project not too far from here and we had taken it over from another design practice. Essentially, a client or a development company had essentially gone through a pretty ordinary design process and and the project or the proposal had been uh, rejected uh, when it went to get approved. And they came to us and said, well... What can you do? Can we just do something around the edges? And can you help us get this thing improved? And we said, well, actually, we agree with all of what the design review panel and the community says. We need to start again. We need to actually make this project relevant to the site's indigenous history, its colonial history, its current context, its future context. You know, we need to actually understand that this site and this proposal is half a hectare and half a city block. So. Mm you're doing city building and you have to say, well, how do we make this make sense? You know, it's not all one big, homogenous mess. It's within a fine-grained kind of neighbourhood. And I guess it gets back to that thing that when we started that redesign process with the clients, we went and did community consultation. There was already an action group against us. And we said, well, let's all meet down at the pub. It was Saturday morning. You know, it starts off pretty rough in that, you know, Everybody's kind of heckling and blah blah. We took it seriously and said, We're going to present our design methodology and our research as if you are educated and because they are educated, they're local people, they understand the neighborhood, but we weren't going to tra- treat them like idiots. We we're mm. going to treat them like we would a design advisory committee. And so we presented it to them. And at the end of this presentation, the heckling had died down. They understood like we were designing like we give it down. And the whole mood of the the ruin changed and at the end you know, people were asking well how much are these things going to cost maybe <laughs> i want to live here and then a couple of months later a whole group of those people actually spoke in support of us when we went to get the project approved mm. at jbap so you know you can engage the community you can actually demonstrate that you're a
0: designer that cares <laughs> We talked a lot about, I guess, designing for the climate and the space. What what would you say is one thing that that you and, and your team consider more than maybe other designers out there at the moment?
1: Oh, well, look, I think in Perth, like we've talked about, it's, a, it's an extreme climate, you know, and like you've experienced the last few days. People think that it doesn't rain in Perth, but it actually rains cats and dogs. So that's another element of design that you have to consider. Look, I think... Like any project, is there's so many different threads of history that you need to respond to. There's so many different sort of threads of, of climate and, and context. And also, we do a lot of infill, and we do that, you know, whether it be student housing or aged care or community housing or luxury housing. And when you're doing infill, you've got to understand or anticipate what the future context is going to be, because you don't want your future residents getting built out and having their amenity compromised Mm. by neighbouring buildings because you haven't done or haven't considered what's going to happen next door. So I guess in answer to that question, I'd like to think that as best as we possible can, we try and talk to the past, understand the present and anticipate the future
0: and just over the last couple of years and i would say excluding this house is there a project that you're particularly proud of
1: oh look i think projects like children you know yeah you you should have favorites no look it's interesting like we get to work across such a variety of projects you have yeah and i think they're all special for different reasons like when you're designing aged care or you're designing student housing you know you've really got to think about the psychology of design you know People might not always think about it like this, but students and elders both have similar rates of social isolation, boredom, and contemplation of suicide. So, how do you actually design for those two groups? And it's mm-hmm. about creating social spaces that people constantly encourage to interact with as they walk through the building, as they go through their day-to-day life. You no, know, because these are these are serious things, and. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, all of us spend an inordinate amount of time within buildings. You know, we sleep in buildings, we work in buildings, we wake up in buildings, everything we do. We spend an incredible amount of time within buildings. So designers and architects have a huge responsibility to create happy and healthy spaces for people to inhabit.
0: And, you know, like you've just what you've just said actually makes entirely a lot of sense, even though I never would have thought hmm. that students and and aged care had that much in common, but you're absolutely right. And so coming to a couple of your projects in brick, why brick? Although it may seem like a natural choice here in Australia's heartland of brick, what is it about brick that you enjoy?
1: I think there's so many different elements. I love the the flexibility of it. Like within this house, you can see it bagged together to become one monolithic sort of mass, Mm. Uh, But then you can see that the craft in detail uh, with the glazed bricks I think the opportunity to, to vary coursing, to vary bonds, to v- vary brick types or overlay different bricks together, you know, there's just, there's so much flexibility within it. But also the scale of it, you know, and why bricks have, have always been used since so many thousands of years, is that human element of you can carry a brick in one hand, you can lay it in one hand, you can transport it easily. And I think for us, we're always wanting our buildings to, to endure, And and Brick's got that incredible ability to endure and to get patina and to actually look better after 70 or 100 years than it did when you first laid it. So I think those are the elements which I really love. You know, you've got infinite opportunity and choice about how much or how little you want to do with it.
0: So, Jimmy, while we're talking Brick and thinking it, maybe you could talk us through your George Street project and it's one of our top 40 projects in the 2021 Think Brick Awards. Absolutely, and
1: so happy to be recognised within that top 40. There are so many amazing projects uh, within the within the group. George Street is one of Perth's best-loved mini high streets. It's a real sort of village hub in East Fremantle. It's got a lot of heritage buildings, a lot of brick buildings, a lot of hospitality, and really good independent retail. And so there's this site on the strip which had been vacant for a long time, and Whenever you have that kind of missing tooth in a strip, you always just want something to happen on it. And so when we got the opportunity to work on it, something that was really front and center for us was, how do you stitch this new building into this great heritage streetscape? How do you do that and not overwhelm the streetscape? So we started to survey the widths of all the individual shop fronts and really started to map out, you know, what was the consistent width Bay width and think, how how are we going to deal with this site? Which was essentially uh, a double width site. So pretty early on, we were like, well, what if we split the mass into two distinct halves? And, you know, we knew one of the buildings on the the west of us had already been developed and it had heritage frontage. So that wasn't going to change. But our neighbor to the east is an old warehouse which has got potential to develop to greater height. So again, trying to anticipate adjacent uh, development potential and so for us we wanted to have a really strong brick mass and quite a monolithic one but we wanted it to have that craft detail in it mm-hmm. so that we created these essentially quite a, a beautiful mix of bonds which goes from stretcher to Flemish into Brice Alley, and then back to stretcher again and then also plays with sort of proud and recessed coursing to really help define it. So. You know, that's the great thing about brick. You can have it feel really quite tough, but then you can bring in filigree detail into it. The other half of the building we wanted to read almost in complete contrast to that because the next building is another brick building. So we wanted to slip in something which was almost like a shadow building, very much darker in colour, less detail, kind of more slick and modern, but in the same way dealt with both the privacy aspect of living on a high street but also you know dealing with the southwesterly and that late summer sun which sort of hits obliquely that side of the street.
0: And just talk to me a little bit about the brick colour choice here because it is a different my husband and I like like saying Perth's favourite brick is that sort of sand colour and this isn't that.
1: Yeah well I mean traditionally I I guess Perth Bricks, we often had deeper ochres and, and reds and in a, a lot of Federation housing, that's what you pick up. Throughout probably the 50s and 60s, you started to get much more of a sandy beige, limestoney tones come mm. through. George Street very much, though, is a sort of late 19th century, early 20th century streetscape, and we really wanted to respond to, you know, the face brickwork which is in the street. And for some people, I guess... Red might feel too hot for Perth. For me, I think it also talks about the strength of some of our best streetscapes, which are the sort of 19th century and Georgian streetscapes. Mm-hmm. You know, around the world, they're sort of respected as really great streets. They engage with passers-by. They've just got a nice scale to them. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, for us, it was an obvious choice. And in a way, the contrast between... The red brick and our sort of shadow insertion next door is really quite sharp. And you know, you really need that contrast between the two to, mm. to get that effect of and the impact. two buildings rather than one broad one.
0: And just talk to us your use of obviously the hit and miss screen that we see has become so popular.
1: Yeah, well, it's just so well suited to a situation like this where you really want to be able to control privacy from the street. You don't want, you know, to feel like you're in a fishbowl when you're living on a high street. Mm but also just to mitigate some of the late afternoon, summer sun. So for us, it's just such a perfect way of expressing the craft of brick, of expressing the sort of the possibilities of it. You know, here we, it's a double brick where, where we stack two bricks on top of each mm. other in that bracelet uh, fashion to actually to reflect the scale of the building overall, which you probably wouldn't do in a house, but in a more commercial uh, or multi-residential situation like this, it really seemed appropriate.
0: It's so clever as well because it's one of those things that tricks the eye to actually making it feel like it's taller than it actually mm. is, which I'm no, sure. No, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, the great thing as well is, that you know, from the street, you just read shadow behind during the day, but from inside you would get, see all the light of, mm. of outside and the view, but then it also flips. So at night the inside becomes a lantern to the street and you get that kind of... Just that extra bit of detail which you don't see in all buildings,
0: and you we have mentioned, and we've got all your projects in front of us here, and you've used them on totally from the one that we're sitting in at the moment to this one student housing. There's obviously an affinity there with with the multiple, I guess, uses for brick that you've been able to translate across a whole variety of different projects. Is that intentional on your part, or is that just the way it turned out?
1: No, absolutely. You know, and I think it's important for us that every project deserves and demands a bespoke designer response. Mm. And that certainly in the way that you laid out, but especially in its materiality. And so we've been working on an aged care project, which is really dear to us in Inglewood. And in that case, you know, aged care often feels institutionalised. Too much like a hospital, you know, really broad floor plates where you just feel like you're in wing after wing and you just lose yourself. And... That is a really terrible environment for an elder to, to live in. Yeah. You know? So this project's really interesting in the way that it breaks up the overall floor plan into a series of smaller homes of sort of 16 beds for mm. people living together. But we've designed it so that the sort of servicing of it is as functional as you know, a large institutional floor plan. But the other major part of trying to get deinstitutionalised, so make something more domestic in this case, is actually the, the brickwork itself, and we've used a number of different bricks. But what that does is also, you know, start to talk to the the elders who live there, and especially those with dementia and other cognitive issues, because it's something that's so comforting about something that you remember from yeah. the past. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a really slick kind of futuristic building which you've got no connection with. You might not be in your home, you not, might not remember your family, but you still have that kind of understanding or memory of what a brick
0: texture is and it's funny isn't it like the older that you get and i'm not implying this for you at all but y- you always look back to what that comfort was when you were growing up and and what that place felt like you know and yeah. for a lot of us it was a brick home absolutely
1: mm. you know my first home had whitewashed brick walls and, <laughs> and now i'm in a bags uh bags white house at the moment so there's always that thing of where you find comfort and that's what you want in your home or anywhere that you live
0: you've alluded to it several times with me now about designing more for not just the next i guess 20 years but for the next 80 where do you see the major changes in design and architecture that may happen
1: oh look i think it's critical that we really start to integrate landscape and nature within our buildings not just in a sort of biophilic you know materiality point of view, but actually with plants uh, and species that can really support our native insects, bees, birds, all that sort of ecology. We're doing a project with Woha which is just getting to site soon and, th- and that JV has been really important because it's trying to understand infill in an established neighborhood and almost create a vertical version of that. And in this case it's like a series of cottage gardens, which exist across multiple floors, mm-hmm. which break down the scale of the building into a series of, of vertical neighbourhoods. And that idea that you can actually make an agapanthus cool is really interesting, you know. And, you know, as you would have seen around the perimeter here, it's an edible and productive garden in that threshold between our home and, and the park that sits adjacent to. But it's also full of flowers, full of things which can support birds and bees and everything else. On the green roofs above us, they're all native endemic WA species. And so you can think this block is 256 square metres, but we've got 300 square metres of garden and courtyard space. And that's exactly what we're doing in, in Applecross with Woha. And you know they've got a great tool about how they write their buildings, and that's Rather than talk about plot ratio, they talk about green plot ratio. So how much are you supplying or giving back to the community? Mm -hmm. And I think adding to that, I'd say as we infill more and more of our neighbourhoods, it's very much critical that we restock and resupply the vegetative qualities uh, and the landscape qualities of our neighbourhoods, but also really maintain and increase community access. I'm really interested in getting more access for the community across our sites and Mm -hmm. into our buildings We've got a project in another part of Perth, and you know it's a it's a large scale project and two hundred and forty odd apartments across sixteen thousand square meters. But we worked with the developer and the local community to essentially give a third of that site to public access and parks. And overall, the buildings actually only occupy thirty three percent of the total lot. And that's a really cool thing of like how yeah. you think about infill and be generous, you know, to your neighbors. And like I said before. Change is always difficult for for people, but if you can actually be generous in the way that you go about design, you've got a much better chance of integrating well and being appreciated um, for what you can actually bring to a neighbourhood, not just what a perceived perception of what you can take away.
0: That's a really beautiful way to look at it, and I don't think it takes too much more thought for us to think, all of us, to think a bit more about space in that way and how we use it. Absolutely.
1: Now, is your building a good bloke or is he a dickhead?
0: Love it. We're sitting in your house that you designed and just talk to me a little bit, it's a courtyard house. Just what were the key influences with this house when you were designing it? It's absolutely stunning. I feel actually I'm in a very exotic location at the moment. I feel I could be anywhere. And we've just witnessed within the last hour a complete change of weather and the house has adapted beautifully.
1: So when I was looking to design this house, there was a couple of architects which I'd admired their work for a long time, and they practised in Perth in the 20th century. That was Marshall Clifton and Julius Ellischer. And these guys were really interested in sort of pursuing what could be an appropriate vernacular response to Perth's climate. And so they looked at courtyard housing models from the Mediterranean. And I guess that was a departure from really an approach to dealing with our climate, which resulted in kind of the mannerisms of uh, Federation style architecture. And so these guys really sort of worked hard to look at, you know, bagged white walls to reflect the heat of summer, looking at how you know, mass and deep reveals within windows can really provide that shade, how that we can cross ventilate buildings really simply and And I guess similar to what we pursue in architecture at at NJ Studio, I'm always really interested in providing the end user choice so that no matter what time of day or no matter what time of year, there's always an ideal spot to inhabit. And you'll see here at this house, you know, there's windows or half walls that you can open up Mm. and sit in the window and have a drink. You can move screens. You know, you've got the thermal chimney that can vent out, hot air at night really want you to be able to drive your own experience and you know adapt it because like you said the weather can change really quickly here and you want that kind of it's kind of just the fun of being able to inhabit an object which can actually adapt
0: Mm. and and I think you're absolutely right the choice of what you can do here and also of what the house can choose to do I mean you mentioned the thermal chimney but there's light and there's breeze and coolness but I'm sure as well as we enjoyed sunlight coming in to warm us when we needed it. Jimmy thank you so much we're going to go into the rapid fire questions now. Reading the news and newspaper or online?
1: Newspaper.
0: Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. For sketching ideas and concepts would you use a pencil pen or an e-pen? Pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Read. What is important to you style or substance? Substance, both. At
1: the end
0: of the day, you've got to do both. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new slash modern?
1: That's a tough one for an architect. And if you look around this house, it's like (laughs) we I carry on my grandmother's antiques, and uh, but the house is relatively modern. But I would say antique in terms of atmosphere.
0: I think it's eclectic. Yeah. Uh, Call or text? Call. Travel back in time or into the future?
1: back in time i'm really starting to sound old
0: video games or board games
1: video games
0: form or function
1: tough one for an architect function then form.
0: complex or simple with relation to design
1: well i guess architecture is the pursuit of making the complex appear simple so both
0: jimmy it's been a real privilege for me to not only see this house inside and out but also to hear your perspective and i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation thank, thank,
1: you, thank you kindly thanks for having <laughs> us and uh, look forward to
0: hearing if you have enjoyed this podcast please follow rate and review our podcast we are always looking for new ways to think brick if you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about there's a link in our show notes to let us know